Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 to 14. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung round his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. This is God's word. My name's Simon, for those who haven't met me, one of the, the ministers here. Some strong words in that passage. Uh, so let's ask God for his help as we try and understand it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you very, very much for these words, which are your words. Thank you for what you say in them. Thank you for the challenge that they are into our lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to understand them, to understand you better now, that you'd be amongst us, with us, as teacher, by your Spirit. Open our eyes, that we may know you better, love you better, serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Matthew 18. And let me ask, uh, as we start, when you first meet someone, uh, how do you mentally size them up? Uh, all sorts of positive ways we do that. We meet somebody, we ask them questions, we find out about their background, their interests. Uh, in London, a fast-paced sort of city, it's a useful skill to be able to do that quite quickly, be able to get to know somebody. It's a useful skill, but uh, there can be an ugly side to that. We rank people in our minds. We measure somebody by some sort of criteria that's important to us. Uh, their appearance, their affluence, their social capabilities in our eyes, uh, whatever it is. And then we compare them with ourselves. And after that first conversation, maybe we decide uh, whether they're worthy of our time, our friendship, our respect. Or are they somebody that we'll be polite to, but we'll just quietly bypass uh, in the future? Let's make it concrete. Imagine you're, you're joining a, a new midweek small group with a random bunch of other people from church, not a million miles away from an experience and many of us have faced this last month. And there's that first week where you turn up and you're introduced for the first time to your new Bible study group and the stakes are high. You're going to be with them all year. 
week in, week out. And so you scan the group, uh, and be honest, is there a small part of you that does this kind of mental assessment? You sort of look around the table and you go, oh, good, that person's quite fun, fantastic. That person laughs at my jokes, excellent. Uh, that one's quite attractive, good. Uh, that one's... Um, Really encouraging with their Bible knowledge. But mm, that person over there, a little bit geeky, a bit hard-working conversation, uh, a lot of effort. Oh, and uh, that one's going out with somebody I used to like. And so underneath the surface, alongside the smiles and the handshakes, there's a sort of mental jostling for position and status. And it ends up with us looking down on people in various ways. And you know what? God hates that. He really hates it. The strong language in in Matthew 18 that we've seen, the very forceful warnings that we've read, that is a measure of how much God hates it when we look down on each other. There's talk in this passage of people deserving to be drowned or for parts of their body to be cut off. Sounds more like a a Quentin Tarantino movie than uh, a saying of Jesus. What on earth would draw Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to use such strong language and issue such violent warnings? It is just this. His people looking down on each other. That is what draws such a strong reaction from him. Look at the question the disciples ask in verse 1. We touched on this last week. They say to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that is a terrible question. It might sound pious. Maybe they, they think they're trying to work out how to be great and do great things in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows that behind that question is this kind of jostling for position, looking down on people, this desire to have status above others. So he hates the question. He basically replies in verse 3, you've got to change Unless you change, you don't even have a place in the kingdom. And we briefly saw last week what Jesus did. He got a a little toddler and uh, brought this little little toddler to stand in the middle of them as a a sort of visual aid. I thought about bringing uh, my son, Joel, who's three tonight, but then immediately thought the better of it. You know what Hollywood says, never work with animals or children. I had no idea how that would go. Um, So I didn't do that. But we saw the point last week that Jesus was making. Only little children enter the kingdom. That is what he's saying in verses 1 to 4. And remember what we said last week. This is not being childlike in the sense of being cute or innocent or naive or those things, those nice things we associate with being children. You have to, in the words of verse 4, humble yourself to realize that you don't bring any of your worldly status to your relationship with God. Maybe, in the world's eyes, some of us in this room tonight have a lot. Uh, Maybe we're successful, some of us, in career terms or in educational achievement. Or uh, maybe some of us are attractive people with vivacious personalities, uh, holding our own in sophisticated conversation, bantering with the best. Those are not bad things. They're good things, but they don't count towards our relationship with God, says Jesus. I didn't bring Joel, but I did bring a picture. Can we have a look at that? Uh, you can see that? There he is. Uh, now, Joel is, is three. He turned three last Monday. And uh, I don't want to shock you, but he has no GCSEs. Not a single A-level or degree. 
uh, he talks quite a bit, but his sentence structure is pretty rubbish. Um, he uh, talks in circles quite a lot. Uh, he pronounces yellow as lello. Uh, and the only subject that he can actually talk about for any length of time is trains. Um, sartorially, I mean, he looks all right there. He's at a wedding. Um, but he, uh, he can't actually wash himself or choose his own clothes or do his hair. Um, Hygiene-wise, let's just say we're still changing his nappies. Um, don't get me started on his service in church, or lack of it. Uh, he's never joined a single rotor, despite all of the appeals from the front. Uh, he's never served anyone a cup of coffee. He's never folded a service sheet or done the PA or anything. Uh, he's never been in the band. He once climbed on stage and just broke a computer monitor. That was... <laughs> he, he might be cute, but he contributes nothing to, to the spiritual life here. He's the opposite. He's a drain on the church's resources. The people who have to look after him over the road. There is no status or qualification that makes him worthy of being part of the kingdom. That is the point of verses 1 to 4. That is what Jesus is saying. We're all like that. We're all little children. As Jesus says, humble yourself like this child, like this toddler. And the rest of the passage is built on that. Look at all the mentions of little children as we go through the whole of our passage. Verse 2, little child. Verse 3, little children. Verse 4, this child. Verse 5, little child. Verse 6, little ones. Verse 10, little ones. Verse 14, little ones. It's all the same word in the original. Little children, toddlers. But here's what underpins the rest of our passage tonight. Although we bring nothing to the table as little children, God loves us. He loves his little children deeply, personally, and is jealously protective of us. So positively, have a look at verse 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. When we welcome one another, God takes personal pleasure in that. Negatively, verse 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, literally to stumble or to fall, it would be better for him to have a large millstone thrown around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, gosh, let's be honest here. Verse 5 is easy to like. But verse 6 is pretty hard at first. It was for me as I was preparing this. But as I thought about it, Suddenly it made sense to me, because I feel exactly the same. Joel, uh, I don't know if the picture can come back. Joel is, um, he's, he's my little one. As a child, he's got no status. He brings nothing to the table, but he's mine. I'm his dad, and I love him. So verse 5 is true of me. The positive verse. If I see you welcoming Joel and uh, looking after him, I, I feel it personally. I take it personally. If you protect him or cheer him up when he's crying or help him if he falls over or hurts himself, you're doing that for me. I'm watching. I appreciate you for it. I love you for it. A friend of Joel is a friend of mine. But it's not just that. Verse 6 is true as well. What if I saw someone deliberately injuring Joel, putting his life in danger, abusing him in some way. How would I react? Well, let me tell you, I would react like verse 6, I've begun to realize. 
I would be prepared to harm you rather than let you harm him. If it was necessary to save his life, I think I'd probably kill you. Now, you're probably thinking, "Uh, I'd like to see you try. But (laughs) that's not the point. I would happily risk myself or go to jail to save my son from an attacker. Those who injure or abuse children are among the most despised in our society, and rightly so. Jimmy Savile, I mean, it's just the latest example of that. So after a, a bit of thought, I get this. Do you get it? It is absolutely right that Jesus speaks in such strong terms. It is brilliant that he does. He is watching his children, and he cares passionately, fiercely, for his children. They may be powerless, but he is not. He will fight for them, for us. And that is what the rest of this passage is about, because God loves his children so much, he cares passionately about how we treat each other. And maybe you think a kingdom full of children sounds like an absolutely horrific thing, some sort of eternal jungle gym or a soft play area where uh, kids are running riot and there's no parents to intervene or get involved. So they're just climbing over one another, pushing each other off the ladders, absolute disaster. Or worse, like um, Lord of the Flies, a bunch of children marooned on an island, unsupervised, jostling for position, getting worse and worse until they end up killing each other. Not in God's kingdom. He loves us and fiercely protects us, according to these verses, which means he takes a very personal interest in how we treat his other children. So here we go. In the rest of our passage, two ways that Jesus says that we should care for God's children. Verses 5 to 10, watch yourself so they don't stumble. And verses 12 to 14, seek them out when they wander. So watch yourself so they don't stumble. And seek them out when they wander. So first, verses 5 to 10, watch yourself so they don't stumble. Let me spell out, if I can, the logic of these verses, which is not immediately obvious. We've seen that verses 5 to 6 are about how we treat each other, welcoming little ones, not causing them to sin. And verse 10 is also about how we treat each other. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, says verse 10. So these verses on the outside, verses 5 and 6 and 10, are uh, speaking of how we treat God's little ones. But then I don't know if you noticed, verses 7 to 9 in the middle speak of watching ourselves. So a little example, verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into eternal fire. How do those... Middle verses about watching ourselves uh, relate to the outside verses about caring for others, other children. Here's how it works, I think. Watch yourself so that they don't stumble. It is our sin that's talked about in the middle which could cause their stumbling in 5, 6, and 10. Does that make sense? Our sin might cause them to stumble. In one sense, that's true of any sin. If somebody sees you sin in just about any way, then they could stumble into sin. They could copy you. They could be horrified and walk away from church, even walk away from Jesus. Sin doesn't just hurt us. Uh, It hurts others as well. That's generally true. But Matthew doesn't just have any sin in mind here. It's the specific sin of verse 10. 
it is, as verse 10 says, looking down on these little ones, looking down on people. By the way, you might be familiar with uh, verses 7 to 9 in another context. Uh, Jesus uses exactly the same words in the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5. So if they seem familiar and the context feels odd to you, that is why. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the sin in view is lust in particular. But here Jesus uses the same memorable words for a different sin, this sin of looking down on uh, others. That is the primary sin in view here. So, here's the question we've got to ask ourselves in light of this passage. What might cause you to look down on others? Identify it and kill it. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying, isn't it? Work out what causes you to look down on others, identify and kill it. Uh, If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not talking literally. It wouldn't be physical arms or legs or eyes that we're going to be cutting off. This is not some sort of spiritual amputation ministry. Um, He's not saying cut other people's arms or legs or eyes off. This is not judge somebody else and sort their life out. This is about finding things within you as an individual, me as an individual, which cause us, cause me, you, to look down on others identify it within you and cut it off, kill it. So let's look at some examples. Uh, We'll start with some superficial ones and then uh, get deeper, I think. So, accent. You meet somebody with an accent that you find hard to understand. Uh, Now, of course, that's going to be harder work. That's inevitable. But do you instantly decide, I don't think I'm going to bother Imagine how that person's going to feel as you don't bother to ask them their name again and don't bother to learn it. Don't bother to find anything out about them. As you look over their shoulder condescendingly as you nod and smile before walking off to chat to somebody else. Maybe their accent is perfectly understandable, but you just, for some reason within you, inexplicable, you just find it annoying. Maybe it's one of the ones that top the poles of most annoying accents. I hesitate to say this. I don't know how much of the congregation we're going to alienate. I uh, googled this, so don't blame me for this list. Scouse, Brummy, Geordie, Essex. Uh, maybe it's just uh, the individual person's voice. Now, look, friendly ribbing one another about how we speak, fine. But judging people, looking down on people, are we really going to do that? Take a look at ourselves. What sort of a ridiculous sense of pride or self-importance or regional pride or class pride lies behind looking down on people for their accents? Cut it off. Kill it. David Beckham, as the press loves to remind us, has a bit of an Essex twang and a squeaky voice. And people love to take the mickey. The press does that relentlessly, the poor bloke. Do you think maybe... Just maybe people are a little bit jealous of his skills, his career, his money, his fame, his looks. Watch yourself. Identify it and kill it. Accents. Clothes. In terms of dress, uh, I guess you'd say we're a, a moderately smart congregation in a sort of modern but a little bit conservative, middle to upper class kind of way. Sorry if you utterly hate that description. What about when someone joins us whose clothes in comparison to the average here are edgy? (laughs) 
I'm a student minister, I can get away with it. Or tatty. Or more council estate smart than West End smart. Or just different. There was a guy that arrived at our morning service during the summer who didn't know anything about us or, or how we all dressed. He, he wore a tuxedo and a bow tie. He looked fabulous, but nobody else looked like him. Um, so uh, I, we realized the potential for him feeling a bit sidelined was huge. We got alongside him and uh, wonderfully he felt welcome and still with us. Dresses a little more relaxed. Um, my wife, Tree, and I were once members of another congregation that uh, is similar in culture to us, if anything, a little more conservative. Uh, and uh, my wife, Tree, got a bit fed up with having to uh, dress more conservatively than usual every Sunday. And one week decided to rebel. And uh, so she dug down in her wardrobe. She didn't have to dig too far. And uh, got her... Got out her goth outfit. And... Uh, <laughs> It was all black and metal and uh, blue lipstick. And so she turned up to St. Helens Bishop's Gate, for those of you who know that, um, dressed like that, and uh, a lot of people just didn't know what to do. Uh, but I wasn't quite sure what to do myself, but there we go. Um, what was lovely was the minister who, who came up to her and said, Tree! Well done. We need more people with guts like that. It'll help others to relax and be more involved in the congregation. So that was good. Um, it's true, though. When, when somebody looks different to us, uh, for whatever reason, we need to make a special effort to not make them feel looked down on, despised somehow. And what sort of bizarre, misguided pride within us looks down on people because of external things like clothes, skin color even, Watch yourself. Identify it. Kill it. Getting a bit deeper. Uh, attractiveness. What are we going to say about this? This can work both ways. Uh, the person arrives who you and your little mind think is less attractive than you and your circles. They don't quite fit, perhaps, physically in your social world. They wouldn't improve your Facebook photos of socials down the pub. So... Uh, a condescendingly friendly word with them in church, perhaps, but you wouldn't invite them to anything social. That's really ugly, isn't it? What about the other way round? Someone arrives and you think they are more attractive than you. Now, there's a recipe for instant dislike. Uh, they're, they're a threat. They are competing with you for perhaps the same potential boyfriends or girlfriends, except maybe they're slightly younger, uh, slightly better looking than you, and uh, slightly more socially able I worry about these things, of course. Um, so the jealousy kicks in, the guards go up, and we choose to look down on them as unworthy competition. They're good-looking, so they must be shallow. Or worse, maybe they start taking an interest in or become interesting to somebody of the opposite sex that you potentially or once had an interest in. And this new person had no way of knowing that. That was just your mind, but you expected them to do a bit of telepathy. And uh, uh, you choose to look down on them as a thoughtless, vicious predator. And the, the gossip begins. Uh, the, the maneuvering, the deliberately trying to make someone feel insecure or sidelined by the group. Trying to make everyone look down on them as well as you. Now if we do that, we're, we're worse than some sort of big brother house. You know what it's like uh, when the new pretty housemate gets introduced and uh, suddenly the existing housemates who thought of themselves as the top of the attractiveness pile feel threatened 
and round on each other and turn into some sort of uh, vicious set of guard dogs trying to turn everybody against the newcomer. Now be careful. You're now judging me, looking down on me for having ever watched Big Brother. It was a long time ago. Surely such things could never happen here. Could they? Have they? Watch yourself. Identify the pride, the selfishness, the jealousy. Kill it. Jesus is very serious. Kill it. Last example, social status. Maybe we've carved out a particular social setting in our uh, circle of friends. We've got a position. We emulate some kind of bad sitcom and we have our role where I'm the chatty one or the caring one or the the fun one or the brutally honest one or the quiet but deep one. Uh, Whatever it is, and our little network of friends works. It's comfortable. We all have our little role to play. And then someone new comes along and they're like you. And instead of enjoying meeting somebody like-minded we choose to look down on them. They're on the make. They're competing for your friends. And they're out for your role. They do what you do, except better, just to get at you. So again, the positioning, the sidelining, the the taking control, the deliberately making somebody feel insecure. Or you could play the opposite social game, where uh, you wait for uh, all the others to make the effort. And you sit there, not talking to anyone, thinking, well, if these people are worth my while then they'll make the first move. They will do all the inviting. They'll open up to me before I open up to them. And if they don't, then I'm going to have all the ammo that I need for uh, looking down on them and complaining that I've got no friends at Christchurch Mayfair, that it's an unfriendly church, when actually, perhaps, at least in part, it might be me that is the one making it impossible for people to reach out, forgetting the fact that a church is made up of people. It includes me. I'm part of the problem. Spot the pride. Watch yourself. Identify it and kill it. We could multiply examples like that. Looking down on someone who we find frustratingly shy or even, dare we say, uninteresting in conversation. Ignoring someone who isn't as fit as we are, so they don't want to socialize over a game of football. Uh, Look, if any of these are on the money, if you recognize yourself even a little bit in any of these... Please take Jesus' words seriously. Maybe he'd put it this way. How dare you treat God's little children like that? How dare you put them in danger, injure them, cause them to stumble and sin by your own sin? God sees it, and he takes it very personally. Verse 10 puts it this way. I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That's not about uh, individuals having guardian angels. The Bible never says that. But we know in a general sense that angels act as God's messengers and agents in the world sometimes. And he doesn't need them. He, he knows. He sees everything that is going on anyway. But this underscores God's personal interest in his children and how they're being treated. He has his angels reporting to him, that's the picture, telling him face to face what his little ones are going through. The point is, he is watching us if we hurt his little children, his beloved toddlers. Now, forgiveness is very possible, freely given, 
for all of these things when we come to him. Jesus died. God's son, God's child, died for our sins. So if we come to him, then the eternal fire, the fire of hell that is spoken of in verses 8 and 9, is something that we, we can wonderfully escape because of his mercy and grace. But these warnings are real and serious. You've got to come to him and seek forgiveness. And change. Let God's forgiveness change you. Know that you are a child, and instead of hurting his other children, welcome them, whoever they are. So first, watch yourself so they don't stumble. Secondly, the last couple of verses of the passage, 12 to 14, seek them out when they wander. So watch yourself and then seek them out when they wander. It's not just that we welcome God's children rather than mistreat them. God wants us to do more than that. He says, seek them out. Go after them. And so we have this parable in these verses of the the lost sheep. And it's another illustration that Jesus uses in different ways on different occasions. It's quite uh, reassuring for us preachers, I think, that Jesus uses the same illustration a couple of times. Anyway, um, I do it because I forgot that I used it last time. Jesus didn't do that. Um, You might be used to the way that he uses this same parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. There it's primarily about those who are lost outside the fold, not yet Christians. But here in Matthew, Jesus tells a story in a different context. He wants us to seek out the little ones who go astray. And verse 14 interprets the parable for us. Our Father in heaven is not willing that any of his little ones should be lost. Well, for goodness sake, this is even more demeaning. We're not just little children, we're sheep. Uh, But the argument is from the weaker to the stronger. A shepherd cares for his sheep. How much more must God care for his children? It's a beautiful picture of being sought out by a loving God when in danger, when lost, when struggling. The shepherd leaves the 99 for the one, goes in search of the one. He makes the priority of the wandering sheep, even at the the temporary expense of being with those 99 safe sheep. Now, This is what church should be like. A flock where everyone is taken care of, sought out, where nobody is left behind, where no effort is spared to seek out wandering sheep, to love them, to care for them, to bring them back to the fold, if at all possible. I think about a friend of mine who I met years ago. She was a regular member of a church we used to go to. Uh, She was there most weeks. She was very much part of things, serving in various ways, engaged with the networks of friendships at church, right at the heart of things. And it happened really gradually, but just subtly, imperceptibly, she started to pull back. In various ways she pulled away, and and here's how it looked to us. She started turning up late and leaving early for things at church. Uh, Weekly attendance on Sundays went from pretty much every week to once a fortnight to once a month to almost nothing. Midweek attendance dropped off the same way. And, I don't know, maybe you you know this experience, that the less often you come, the harder it is to come when you do come. Because, well, somebody will say, are you all right? Where have you been? We've missed you. Um, And to see her, to talk to her, she was the same friendly face. She would say, she's really busy, lots of work, uh, 
quite a bit of travel, hard to get to church at the moment, but a bit, a, a tough time just at the moment. What we know now is that she was facing all kinds of struggles um, sexually in terms of relationships and so on. She was wondering if she could stay Christian at all. We know that now. We didn't know that then. We almost didn't see it. And we nearly lost her. And I look back and I praise God for her Christian friends who wouldn't let her go. They made her talk. They made her come and talk to me initially and then to others. And now talk talk to her and she's incredibly grateful. She's delighted to be back in the fold. She's one of those 99 safe sheep now, seeking out others. But if she hadn't been sought out, I don't know where she'd be now. She'd have wandered away. And you know what? That is what we sign up to by being part of a church. We sign up for being part of a family that will seek us out if we drop away. Did you know that? We're not just a weekly free event to attend uh, or a social club to come and go from as we please. There's something much, much better than that about being in a church. We're God's flock. We're God's family. And that makes us responsible for one another. So as a church, we're going to try and do this. We try to care for all of us, all of you, in the same way that God cares for each of us as individuals. We try to seek out those of us who who wander from time to time. We'll try and seek out you if you wander. And I hope that you can see that that is a brilliant thing. That's not something to resist. Something to treasure, to thank God for. That he cares for you that much, that his flock, his family cares for you that much. If this is going to work, if we're going to be this kind of church that seeks out those who are wondering, uh, as far as I can see, we've got to do a number of things. Here's a, a few. We've got to attend at the bare minimum. We, can I encourage you to really make this your home church, if you call this your church? Don't divide up your time so thinly that this is just a little tiny part of your life that you can barely fit in on a Sunday. Please try and make this your home. Be part of the flock. Be here on Sundays. Be here midweek. Consider yourself part of the family. Attend. Secondly, make yourself available for relationships and accountability to be sought out if you wander. Basically, uh, join a small group. That really helps with this. Um, If you haven't, let me urge you, joining a small group is basically you saying to us, will you look after me? I'm a sheep. I'm a toddler. I'm inclined to wander. I need you to look out for me. I need you to stop me wandering off. Will you do that? That's what you do when you join a small group. Join up for that. Make yourself available to be looked after. And please, please, please don't be offended when people give you a call and say, are you okay? We've missed you for a couple of weeks. Is everything all right? If you respond by saying, oh, come on, get off my back. You're not my boss. What is this? Some sort of heavy shepherding cult? Come on. There's not a lot we can do except try to love you. No one's forced to stay. Jesus doesn't force people to stay in his family. Anyone can walk away and leave. But we'd love to love you in the way that the Father loves you, by seeking you out. Make yourself available for that. So, attend, make yourself available, seek others out. If you're not a wandering one at the moment, then be a shepherd. We're a big-ish church. The leaders can only do so much. 
A lot of the onus of this falls onto the small group leaders, but every single person here can be part of this. Seek out our wandering brothers and sisters. Phone them up for coffee. Come to church together. Look in your contact list and your phone to see if there's people who have wandered recently or even a little bit longer ago who maybe you're in a unique position to make that first call and say, I haven't seen you for a while. You're doing all right. Do you want a coffee? Do you want a pint? Do that. Finally, see this as a fantastic thing. Because it is. It is God caring for his little children. As we finish, uh, sorry to keep coming back to Joel, uh, my son, but um, he really has helped me to make sense of this passage. Those of you who come on Sunday morning may know that Joel is quite an escape artist. Uh, there was a stage where at least once every Sunday morning, Tree and I would, would run screaming towards the front door as he made a bid for freedom and tried to get to the road. Um, we had some hairy moments. Now, imagine me running like a headless chicken towards him who's about to leave, um, and somebody grabbing me and saying, what are you doing? Come on, you're the minister. There's 99 people here who need you to look after them. That's your job. Stay here and, and look after them. Can you imagine my reaction? Shut up, get out the way. <laughs> I love my little one. I will do anything to bring him safe. There'll be time for the 99 when I get back. But right now, nothing will stop me going after my son. That's what God does. That's what he's done in sending Jesus to die for you. That's what he continues to do in sending us, each other, to seek each other out. So let's do that for each other. Because that is how God feels about you. He is not willing for one of his sheep to be lost. And neither should we. Let's pray. What a a wonderful Father you are. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you have sought each one of us out personally. That by sending Jesus to die for us, you have paid the price for our rebellion, for our wandering, for our treatment of one another. Thank you that you have paid the price that enables us to be your adopted children forever. Help us to treasure that. And Lord, as we learn more and more about what it means to humble ourselves like a little child, like one of your children that we truly are. Help us to apply that by loving one another, by caring for one another. We pray that our church, this church, would be marked by relationships of humility, relationships where we don't jostle for position, rank each other, but where we love, where we seek, where we give each other to each other, give ourselves to each other and bring you glory through that. In Jesus' name.